The wrong diagnosis uh, can be disastrous. The wrong diagnosis can be disastrous. And maybe you remember this story just from a couple years ago. Uh, the Power and Limits of Classification. Uh, the article is titled from the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, this doctor writes uh, an account of what occurred uh, when a couple came into the ER room. I'll read along. Sam, a 32-year-old man, was brought to the emergency department by his boyfriend. Sam reported an 8-hour history of severe, 8 out of 10 hours, intermittent lower abdominal pain. In triage, he had a blood pressure of 185 over 84 and a heart rate of 67 beats per minute. The triage nurse noted that he was an obese man who appeared comfortable between bouts of pain. Sam told the nurse that he was a transgender man. His electronic medical records indicated that he was male. He had previously used testosterone as well as anti-hyperintensives, both which he had ceased. It had been several years since he last menstruated. He had taken a home pregnancy test, though, that morning and got a positive test, but he wondered whether it was a false positive. He added that he had, quote, peed himself that morning. The triage nurse diagnosed or assessed him to be a man with abdominal pain who had not taken his prescribed blood pressure medications. Determining that his condition was stable, she triaged him to non-urgent assessment. Lab samples were drawn, including uh, a couple different ones. And several hours later, an emergency physician came to evaluate him. She noted the positive results of the serum HCG test and took a more detailed history considering possible early pregnancy complications. On examination, she noted that his abdomen was not only obese, but it was also gravid. The elevation had changed. The patient had severe abdominal pain, possible ruptured membranes, and hypertension in advanced pregnancy, which suggested possible labor, placental abruption, or preeclampsia. Urgent conditions presenting a potential emergency. Beside uh, a bedside ultrasound was performed, confirming an advanced pregnancy with unclear presence of fetal, fetal cardiac activity. The obstetrics team was paged urgently. On, uh, on pelvic exam, the cervix was found to be dilated four to five centimeters. The umbilical cord was palpated in the vagina and Sam had cord prolapse and uncertain, of uncertain duration. The fetal head was immediately elevated and Sam was rapidly counseled regarding the findings and the need for an emergency C-section. He consulted and was transferred to the operating room for further evaluation. In the operating room, no fetal heartbeat could be detected on ultrasound. Given the fetal death, Sam was transferred to a delivery suite where moments later, he delivered a stillborn baby. Uh, if you're like me, you begin immediately kind of pointing fingers, right? Uh, what went wrong? Who is to blame? Is it uh, Sam? Is it the, the nurse? Uh, is it the system of not classifying patients correctly? And uh, how, how do we change this? What went wrong? And maybe you look out at our broken world, right? And, and maybe you look into your broken self or your broken marriage or your broken singleness and you wonder, man, what's gone wrong? And the wrong diagnosis can be disastrous. 
You know, if you're a, a mom or a dad and you got little kids, you, you're thinking, man, man, it's the educational system that's maybe gone wrong, right? Well, what do we, what do, we do in, in our, our broken world that's gone wrong? Well, it's, it's educating. We've got to pull them out and homeschool them or get them in a private school or, or keep them in public school and be more involved or, or change all these kinds of systems. That, that's what's wrong. If we could just get education right, then we'd, we'd be great. Or it's November, right? November's coming. And you're a voter here in the D.C. area, Maryland. And, and so you're kind of, maybe you look at the broken world and you see the system. You say, oh, we need to uh, change this or that in leadership and laws and systems. And, and that's what's wrong if we could get all these things right. And, and you know, education is important and politics are important. Or maybe, maybe you're a, a moral person. A religious person. And what's wrong is we've been a generation that's left church. We've stepped out and we've got to get more people in the pews. We've got to get prayer back in school. Then we'd have it right. What's gone wrong? What is wrong since the beginning of time? You know, you, you, we point fingers at this was wrong, that is wrong, this is wrong. This is the solution. And it's the old cliche, right? When you're pointing fingers out, how many are pointing back at you? It's three, right? It's kind of funny, but it reminds me of a story. Uh, back in 1910, the New York Times puts out a request says, uh, uh, and, and, and kind of uh, beckons essayists and, and thinkers of the time to answer the question, what's wrong with our world? And so political minds write in uh, a huge diatribes on uh, it's the political system that we need to change and, and our leaders and our laws and our systems to make them more just, equitable world. And then, then it would be right. And it's, uh, then you got these educational thinkers that write in. We've we got to get our education right. Then you got religious thinkers writing in and, and these huge essays explaining what's wrong with our world and, and therefore how do we fix it. Because right, diagnosis leads to treatment. G.K. Chesterton uh, writes back in 1910. Uh, G.K. Chesterton is a literary critic. He's a uh, philosopher, uh, a political mind as well, a writer. He's a believer. He's a Christian. And in the face of all these uh, huge essays and explanations, uh, diagnosis and treatment plans, G.K. Chesterton uh, writes back simply to the New York Times, What's wrong with the world? Dear sirs, I am. I am what's wrong with the world. Me, my brokenness, you and your brokenness, we are what's wrong with the world. We have broken systems, we have broken people uh, because we are broken. I am what's wrong with the world, G.K. Chesterton answered. And I think we all kind of know that, don't we? So what's the treatment plan, right? Uh, your marriage is broken because you're broken and I'm broken. Your singleness is broken because you're broken. Your educational processes are broken because we're broken. Our political system is broken because we're broken. So what's the treatment plan? How, how do we get right? Uh, uh, be good people, moral people, kind people, loving people, tolerant people, good people before God and others. It's in that context that Jesus gives this diagnosis, which is so critical because the wrong diagnosis is disastrous. And the context is that of a, a very wrong diagnosis that the people of the time have uh, presented as a way to fix our brokenness. 
See, in the context, they're going to be answering, uh, this is an external problem which is solved by more effort, more system, more changes of us. Let's look at the context together a little bit because the right diagnosis is critical for the right treatment plan. Chapter 7, verse 1 of Mark, uh, we see that the Pharisees have gathered to him with some of the scribes uh, who had come from Jerusalem. You got all the bigwigs of the religious world here coming around Jesus in Galilee, his hometown up north. And they've said, we know we are broken, we are wrong, but we know the system that will fix us. And they look at Jesus and they say, your boys are not following the system. (laughs) It's the first thing they say. Uh, They saw that some of Jesus' disciples ate with hands that were defiled, unclean, wrong, right? That, That were unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. They don't just wash their hands, the text will go on to say. They they wash cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Everything must be washed because it's all dirty and defiled. Whatever you touch or come in contact with will make you unclean. The whole system is built up of of separating people from people and keeping us separate from God by by walls and dietary laws and restrictions. Uh, A whole system is built up of commands, do this and you'll be good enough before God and others. Keep these laws or you're toast. Down to the very washing of our hands and what is eaten, it all must be done their way according to their traditions. Handed down from God in Leviticus and other places, but then grown to a place where the wrong diagnosis is found. You see what Jesus says when, when they say, why, why, aren't your, why aren't your disciples washing and cleansing themselves, making themselves right before each other to enjoy fellowship and before God? Jesus looks at them in chapter 7, verse 6, and it's pretty scathing. He says, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. He says, uh, your system of cleansing yourself and being clean and right before others and God, it's not working. You're hypocritical. What is on the inside is not matching what's on the outside. What what is seen doesn't match with what's unseen. You, You say you do this and you do that. You say you're loving, but you're judgmental and harmful. Your your lips you say you praise, but in your hearts you are deceitful. What you're doing on the outside can't get to the real problem is what Jesus is saying, our hypocritical hearts. And now he'll go on to prove it in verses 9 and following in the context, which all leads up to the diagnosis where we're going to focus this morning. He, he talks about, uh, you, you know, you have the commandment of Moses, right? straight from God, right? Honor and love your father and your mother is what he says. You got this directly from God, a commandment, a command that shows the holiness of our God and his intention that we are to obey with all of our lives, but then it also reveals our sinfulness and our ability to keep it. You have this commandment, But you've stacked on top of it a system to make yourself right before God and right before others. And you've added in that system of your tradition this thing he calls Corbin. So here's what they're doing and he condemns them for. You have the command which is honor and love your father and your mother. But what you've done is you've taken all your possessions and you've called them Corbin. 
And Corbin is simply this. You've set them aside as though they were for the Lord. This car is for you, Lord. These riches are for you, Lord. Therefore, they're not for my mom. They're not for my dad. I'll spend them all I want until I die. They can't touch a penny of it. He says, do you see how wicked you are? You're trying to be better, but it's not solving it. You're living all these separated ways, and it's not working. You're, you're trying to cleanse yourself up, and, and it's not doing the job. You're trying to obey, and you are not obeying. you got a problem. Your diagnosis is all wrong. It's not external, and the solution is not all more effort. And Jesus hits the diagnosis here, and I want us to get into it. Because the wrong diagnosis is disastrous, but the right one leads to a treatment plan of life and salvation and hope and transformation. It's offensive news first, and then it is so freeing and life-giving. Uh, here's the diagnosis that Jesus hits as our problem. Uh, chapter 7, verses 14 and 15, Jesus says he calls the people to him and said to them, it's in the context of what has just happened, Hear me, all of you, and understand. Notice right off the bat, he, Jesus is like, hear me. This is important. Get, ears out, right? Who hear me? All of you. Everybody, listen up. It's that important. And then he, say, he had tags on a third. Understand. This is so critical, he says. The wrong diagnosis is disastrous. Hear me, all of you, understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. Outside is not the problem. He'll explain that in verses 18 and 19. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. We're crooked inside, he says. He'll explain that in verses 20 to 21. Hear me, all of you. The problem is not what out, uh, it's outside of us. That's not where we fix it. The problem is deep in who we are. It's what theologians have called for centuries total depravity, original sin, sinful by nature. And, you know, the, the, the disciples are scratching their head at this point, right? They entered the house in verse 17 and, and left all the people. His disciples ask him about the parable. They're like, we don't get it. Like, this is totally different than how we've been functioning, that things are unclean outside of us. And we, what we touch, what we eat, what we do, what we don't do, that's what makes us unclean. This, is, this doesn't make any sense. And the disciples asked him about it. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? You're missing it too? And see, I think we're in a culture right now that is totally missing it too. You know, people look in at Christianity and they say, I know what Christianity is. It's doing better. It's keeping the Ten Commandments. It's being moral. It's going to church. It's smiling when you're sad inside. <laughs> That's what Christianity is. And then in the church, we think, yeah, yeah, you pray this prayer. You receive God by grace. But then, man, you got to get after it. You got, we got to work hard. We gotta, look, sir, you're not serving downstairs. You're not a good Christian. If you're not sharing enough, man, what, what are you doing? We're scratching our heads right along with these disciples, misunderstanding the core problem, the core solution, which changes everything. He goes on to say, this is not an outside problem, verses 18 to 19. Verse 18, Jesus said to them, 
then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declares all foods clean. Okay. It gives a really interesting, gritty analogy as a naturalist of sorts. He, he says... Don't you know that anything on the outside, it doesn't have the power to defile or, or make you uh, wicked or evil on the inside? Uh, if you eat something, he says, if it goes into you from the outside, that's not the problem. Uh, because when you eat it, it doesn't defile you. It just goes into your stomach and then it's expelled. It never goes into your heart. Actually, the uh, translation of the Greek there, it goes into the latrine. And we've glossed it over because that's kind of nasty. <laughs> But Jesus is saying, anything out here can't pollute you. That's not the problem. It just goes into your belly and is expelled. Now, see, here's what's happened in the system that the Jews were functioning by at Jesus' time. The system that was to point to the problem had itself become the solution. Does that make sense? The system that was to point to the problem of our sinfulness and our need for a Savior had itself become the solution. And see, uh, they're supposed to kind of uh, do, go through these cleansing rituals of cleansing the pots, cleansing their hands uh, before coming to the worship or eating with each other, as though to kind of picture the fact that, man, as my hands were dirty today, I am a dirty person in need of help. Uh, they're to uh, go through the sacrificial system and process uh, in order to say, when, when we put our hands on this lamb on the Day of Atonement or this goat, uh, we're, we're in essence saying man, we're putting our sin on them and then they're slaughtered in our place as if to say, what I need is somebody who's righteous to take my place, somebody who has no blemish or sin or stain of their own to die in my place. That's what I need. Or they're to take these separating. You, you look at the temple. You've got all these walls of separation. You've got the, uh, the Jew and Gentile wall. If you're a Gentile, you can't come past here. You've got the uh, Jewish woman and Jewish man wall. You can't go past here. And then you've got the Holy of Holies. Only the priest can go in. Uh, each wall saying we're separated from God by our own sinfulness. Only the priest, after all these cleansing rituals, separating himself for a week, praying and fasting, then cleansing his cloak, and going in to only offer sacrifices first for himself, then for the people. Only you can come in at this moment in this time. As if that we might scratch our head and say, I want to be close to you, but I'm separated by who I am and what I do. Obeying the Ten Commandments. And all of God's laws, are to, uh, he gives them to reveal his holy nature and character that we would then obey them. But then in, in, in trying to obey them with all of our effort, we would say, my gosh, I can't love the Lord my God with all my heart, my soul, my mind. I can't love him with my whole strength. I can't keep all of these commandments that you've commanded me to command. I'm a wretched man in need of grace. Yet they had taken the system that was to point to the problem and itself had become the solution. Because there was a misdiagnosis. The problem is outside of me. It's not me. And Jesus says, 
you're the problem. I'm the problem. And it's deep in our sinful, wretched hearts. He goes on to say just that. What comes out of a person is what defiles him from within, out of the heart of man. And notice it's an exact parallel to what does not defile a person. And what defiles a person is what comes out of him from the inside, not what comes uh, into him from the outside, because it, that itself is defiling from who they are out of their heart. The problem is us. Who we are leads to what we do. Like an illness has symptoms, so does a sinner sin. We know how this works, right? Like an illness, you have the flu, and then you just look, you look for the symptoms. Yeah, gosh, I got the flu. I'm sniffling. I, I just want to stay in bed all day. You got COVID. You can't taste. Right? An illness has symptoms. Or, or like, a, like our nature leads to our actions. I'm a bird, so I fly. I'm a chicken, so I lay eggs. My nature leads to my actions. Who I am leads to what I do. In this case, we are rebels living in rebellion. Self-centered people stepping on and over others and past God to live for me. That's the picture that the scriptures paint for us when it comes to the diagnosis of our problem. Jesus says it's from the inside out. Luke 6, 46 and 47 says this, Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. But for out of the overflow of our hearts, our mouth speaks. It's not that you, you, you curse others. The problem is that you have a heart that slanders and curses others. It's who we are overflowing in our actions or our words. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. And all over Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And Jesus says uh, things like this. He says, You've heard that it's wrong to commit adultery. Do not commit adultery. But he says this. He says, if you've looked lustfully at a man or a woman, what you've already committed adultery in your hearts, without even the action, it's in us. Or Isaiah 53, verse 6. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us, all of us, have turned to our own way. Now, you, you see that picture? Uh, uh, we're, we're sheep. We're supposed to be kind of in this herd. And Jesus is this amazing shepherd. And we're like, no thanks. And we go our own way. God says, I've created you for a relationship with me and to love and serve others around you. We say, no thanks. I'm going to do it my own way. We all, like sheep, every one of us has gone astray, each of us turning to his own way. Psalm 51, verse 5 says, David, man, he's mourning over his own sin in Psalm 51, verse 5. And he says, in sin did my mother conceive me. I was born this way. And God's like, yeah, you and I, broken, sinful at birth. 
Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. You see, the evidence is everywhere. Uh, naturally, we sin. Just naturally. I, I've got six kids. Jacob was born. I did not have to teach him how to complain. I didn't have to. He just, man, he got that really good. I mean, right straight from the start, he knew how to complain, how to be unsatisfied. And then Eden was born. She's so sweet and kind. She's just as great a complainer. I didn't have to teach it. Jillian, she never complains. I mean, she, she actually does. She's a, it's, in, it's in their hearts, right? right? From the move. I didn't have to teach them to throw their food at me when they had it. And I didn't have to teach myself to be so dissatisfied with them or angry with them or so mean to them. Oh, wretched sinner that I am. It comes naturally. It shows up repetitiously, sin does. I, I, I'm still journaling about the same kinds of sins I was journaling about in high school. Repetitiously. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul's looking at his life and he's like, oh my gosh, I'm groaning. I wish I weren't this kind of guy who, who, who just, I, I wish I were holy and righteous. He's saying, I'm groaning my way all the way to heaven until that day when I'm made right. And he's like, over and over again, I just keep sinning. It's in who we are and it comes out over and over again. It's naturally there. It's repetitious and it's holistic. Our sin is holistic. It's what we think, how we feel, what we want. It's all over us. In Romans chapter 7, Paul's looking at his life again. He's like, oh man, I, I, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I just keep doing. I, I don't want the, yeah, I'm all twisted up from the inside out. This is our devastating but critical diagnosis. I want us to spend a moment here then to reflect, just to reflect a little bit. Uh, go ahead and close your eyes, and I want us to make a little bit of an inventory of our lives. You can turn into prayer if you'd like, that's fine, or you can just sort through your life a little bit. And, and I want you to think about what are you not proud of? What are you not proud of? Maybe it has to do with your role. Uh, you, you know your mom, but you're just like, man, I'm not the kind of mom I want to be. Or you know your dad, and you're like, I'm not the kind of dad I, I want to be. You're just not proud of it. You can point to specific things. Your employee, your workplace, you're, you're an employee there, and you, you just realize, man, I, I'm not giving it 110%. I, I'm not working creatively here. I'm not working excellently. I'm not giving all I have there. And I, or maybe in your employees, is this become everything to you? You're not proud of the fact that you're destroying your family by the way that you're working. Or maybe you're a son or a daughter, and you just think, man, I'm not proud. I'm not living up to who I ought to be as a son or a daughter. I'm just not doing it. Keep that catalog going through your mind here for a second. And maybe it's not a role, but an action, something you have something you've done, you've hidden it. 
or, or something you didn't do and you wish you had done. Or maybe it's a habit, or maybe it's just the fact that there's no action in your life. You're apathetic, and you know the things you ought to do. You're just not doing them, or you're just apathetic to the... You see injustice around you, but you're not doing anything about it. It's kind of hitting you. I'm not proud of that. Think about your feelings for a second, your lack of satisfaction. Gosh, God's giving you so much, but you're just not satisfied, or... or or you have what you need, but you're, you're just not satisfied. Or you, your anxiety, you, you know it's a lack of trust in him and others. Or, or your anger, you just wish you could control that anger of yours. And, and you're not proud of these things. Or your thoughts. Man, if people knew what you thought. That person in your family, your community group, or your church, your workplace, if they knew what you thought about them. Or that thought that jumps in your mind you just wish you hadn't had. Or maybe something now you're not proud of. But what about something in the past? Something that happened one time. It was huge and it's, it's just marked your whole life. Or it's little, but for some reason you can't just let it go. Or it's over and over again and it's just bringing you shame. You can't make up for it. If you open your eyes with me now, you're probably feeling an unproud feeling about some of the things that Mark lists right here. The stuff that comes out of us, out of the heart of men and women, us. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, or even anger, as Jesus will talk about, adultery or lustfulness, coveting. Man, you, 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 want, you want what others have, you, you wish you had, or wickedness, or deceit. You told that little lie, and it's having big consequences. Sensuality, envy, your slander, how you talk or think about others, pride. And maybe you were going through that uh, category, and you were thinking, yeah, no, actually, I'm a role, just doing great activity. Mm-hmm, yeah, I, I, I got this pretty good. Okay, pride. We'll just go with Pride. <laughs> At first, the truth is so offensive, but then it is so freeing and so life-transforming. The diagnosis is so critical, and it's so offensive at first, but then it is so freeing and life-transforming. Here's three quick takeaways. The first is this. We need a Savior, not self-improvement. We need a Savior, not self-improvement. A self-improvement, if we diagnose this as an external problem and the solution is more effort, that'll just wear us out or exasperate us or we think we're attained, we're going to be so prideful and judgmental. But what we need, we need a savior, not self-improvement. And that's just what we have. It's just what we have. We throw our hands up and say, man, I'm dirty, wretched, unclean. I am the problem. And Jesus says, I'll recreate you. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 21, it says, Jesus, who had no sin, was perfect, became sin on our behalf. He hangs on a cross in our place, taking the penalty, the wage of our sin, that we might then become the righteousness of God, that our hearts would be purified, that Ephesians chapter 1 would be true. You are blameless and pure in Christ. And we have a Savior. 
And he has died on the cross. He's lived a righteous life all the way up, full obedience all the way to the cross, died in our place, resurrected to give us newness of life. And we say, man, I'm a son or daughter now in him when I've just trusted him by faith. I've received his cleansing. I've accepted who he is and what he's done for me. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Ephesians chapter 2 says, By grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourself. It's a gift of God, not by works so no one can boast. John chapter 1 verse 12 says, Yet to those who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He says, you realize you weren't clean enough? Come be cleansed in me. You realize you were separated from God? Come receive a family relationship through me, Jesus. You, you realize you had a debt to be paid? Receive my debt as your very own. You realize you're not good enough, not righteous? Receive my righteousness as your very own. Come on in. We're sinners saved by grace. How deep is our problem? How great and mighty is our Savior? Takeaway number two, cleansing leads to transformation. Cleansing is transforming. Letting who he is and what he's done collide with our sin and sinfulness. You know, I probably lie for different reasons that you lie. Somebody says, yay, how big's the, how big's the well? And I'm like, 600, 700. They're like, whoa. I'm like, yeah, that's pretty awesome, right? I'm pretty awesome. Validation, right? Maybe, that's, maybe, maybe you lie to avoid conflict because you don't want to go into conflict because you're fearful of rejection. Now, here's what I do. I, I take that symptom, that sin, right, first, and, and then I ask why. i got to get to the heart of why I lie. And then I collide that, oh, validation, I need to lie with the validation of who I am. I collide that with the bad news and the good news of the gospel. The bad news is, Matt, you're not worthy at all. Actually, you're worse than you think you are. And I'm like, phew, man. And, but then the good news is you've been made a son or a daughter by grace. It doesn't matter how many people go to the church. You are loved. You're a child of the king. And then I say, oh, my gosh, I want to obey him in response to the grace he's poured out for me in Christ. And see, he wants to get into the very heart of who we are and radically transform us from the inside out by his gospel. The wrong diagnosis says, oh, it's just the outside. The problem is just you lie. You got to stop lying. Stop lying. We'll do better. Try harder. Stop lying. Why, why are you still lying? Let's be judgmental. No. Jesus says, you're a wretched sinner in need of grace. And then he transforms us by his grace. Third takeaway and final one, cleansing creates relationship. Cleansing creates relationship. Now, right after this passage, uh, Jesus runs towards a Syrophoenician woman and helps her and heals her. And you know, everyone right there is going, what? He's going towards her? Doesn't he know how dirty outcast? He doesn't belong with us. And Jesus is running towards us. See, that's what, that's what realizing how sinful we are will do. When I realize how sinful I am, guess what? Every level is a playing field. We're all a bunch of sinners. They don't know, you're doing awesome. Actually, it's Norman's, I'm doing awesome. You're not doing awesome, right? Like this level, he runs towards people that everyone else would consider outsiders. The transgender man, he runs towards. The, the cisgender woman, he runs towards. He runs towards them. 
Ain't nobody left out from His grace. Opens the door, creates relationship. It also helps us realize we're sinners married to sinners. We're sinners going to church with sinners. We're sinners employed with other sinners. So in those relationships, you know what we can do? Well, we can just own our own junk and say, man, I'm a sinful person and here's how it showed. Would you forgive me? He can share it transparently with one another in our church, right? Like that's particularly in 3Ds, man. We should just be opening up our lives so transparently and then reminding us over and over one another of the good news of the gospel, how we are saved by grace and transformed. Because it's paid for, it's done. Our sin was hung on that cross in Christ and we have his righteousness. And lastly, we can forgive junk, right? We can forgive each other's junk. I know you're a sinner. (laughs) You know I'm a sinner. I can say, I forgive you in the same way I've been forgiven. The right diagnosis is absolutely critical to lead to the right treatment plan. And our salvation is in our Savior, not in more effort, trying, or self-improvement. It'll transform your life in every relationship that you have. Jesus runs toward that Syrophoenician woman, and we we say, oh, even them! And, And I think sometimes why we don't yell, even me, even me! is because we don't take time to look at our own sinfulness, what's coming out of our hearts. Uh, so I want to give us some of that time right now. As we take communion, I'm going to create just in a little bit of an extended time for us to look down in there and, and, and kind of wrestle with some of that stuff that you weren't proud of that we just thought through. And in prayer, just bring that before him. So in order to do that and help us prepare to do that, I, I just want us to read this prayer of confession that uh, church has been reading for years and years. Let's just read this out loud together, and then I'll lead us in a time of prayer. Ready? Let's one, two, three, all together. Ready? Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you. All right, real loud now with me. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We're truly sorry and we humbly repent. As we prepare for communion, I want us to pray. I want us to bring these things before our God. The things we're not proud of that flow out of the heart of who we are. And then I want us to feel his embrace that he spilled his blood for you, his body was broken for you, that his righteousness, his goodness was given to you, that you're a new creation in Christ. Let's spend some time in prayer and reflection. Then when you're ready, take and eat together. If you haven't yet received it, if you're trusting in your own effort, your own morality, you're just saying, man, I'm doing my best I can. Would you this morning, would you receive him? you receive the grace that he's poured out on you in Christ? Just talk to him in prayer. Receive the gift he's given you.